History of England, Chapter 10, Part 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England, From the Accession of James II, by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 10, Part 5. On Monday, the 17th of December, all the peers who were at Windsor were summoned to a solemn consultation at the castle. The subject proposed for deliberation was what should be done with the king. William did not think it advisable to be present during the discussion. He retired, and Halifax was called to the chair. On one point the lords were agreed. The king could not be suffered to remain where he was. That one prince should fortify himself in Whitehall and the other in St. James's, that there should be two hostile garrisons within an area of a hundred acres, was universally felt to be inexpedient. Such an arrangement could scarcely fail to produce suspicions, insults, and bickerings which might end in blood. The assembled lords, therefore, thought it advisable that James should be sent out of London. Ham, which had been built and decorated by Lauderdale on the banks of the Thames, out of the plunder of Scotland and the bribes of France, and which was regarded as the most luxurious of villas, was proposed as a convenient retreat. When the lords had come to this conclusion, they requested the prince to join them. Their opinion was then communicated to him by Halifax. William listened and approved. A short message to the king was drawn up. "'Whom,' said William, "'shall we send with it?' "'Ought it not,' said Halifax, "'to be conveyed by one of your highness's officers?' "'Nay, my lord,' answered the prince, "'by your favour, it is sent by the advice of your lordships, and some of you ought to carry it. Then, without pausing to give time for remonstrance, he appointed Halifax, Shrewsbury, and Delamere to be the messengers. The resolution of the lords appeared to be unanimous, but there were in the assembly those who by no means approved of the decision in which they affected to concur, and who wished to see the king treated with a severity which they did not venture openly to recommend. It is a remarkable fact that the chief of this party was a peer who had been a vehement Tory, and who afterwards died a non-juror, Clarendon. The rapidity with which at this crisis he went backward and forward from extreme to extreme might seem incredible to people living in quiet times, but will not surprise those who have had an opportunity of watching the course of revolutions. He knew that the asperity with which he had in the royal presence censured the whole system of government had given mortal offence to his old master. On the other hand, he might, as the uncle of the princesses, hope to be great and rich in the new world which was about to commence. The English colony in Ireland regarded him as a friend and patron, and he felt that on the confidence and attachment of that great interest much of his importance depended. To such considerations as these, the principles which he had during his whole life ostentatiously professed now gave way. He repaired to the prince's closet, and represented the danger of leaving the king at liberty. The Protestants of Ireland were in extreme peril. There was only one way to secure their estates and their lives, and that was to keep His Majesty close prisoner. It might not be prudent to shut him up in an English castle, but he might be sent across the sea and confined in the fortress of Breda till the affairs of the British islands were settled. If the prince were in possession of such a hostage, Tyrconnell would probably lay down the sword of state, and the English ascendancy would be restored to Ireland without a blow. If, on the other hand, James should escape to France and make his appearance at Dublin, accompanied by a foreign army, the consequences must be disastrous. William owned that there was great weight in these reasons, but it could not be. He knew his wife's temper, and he knew that she would never consent to such a step. 
Indeed, it would not be for his own honour to treat his vanquished kinsman so ungraciously, nor was it quite clear that generosity might not be the best policy. Who could say what effect such severity as Clarendon recommended might produce on the public mind of England? Was it impossible that the loyal enthusiasm which the king's misconduct had extinguished might revive as soon as it was known that he was within the walls of a foreign fortress? On these grounds William determined not to subject his father-in-law to personal restraint, and there can be little doubt that the determination was wise. James, while his fate was under discussion, remained at Whitehall, fascinated, as it seemed, by the greatness and nearness of the danger, and unequal to the exertion of either struggling or flying. In the evening news came that the Dutch had occupied Chelsea and Kensington. The king, however, prepared to go to rest as usual. The Coldstream guards were on duty at the palace. They were commanded by William, Earl of Craven, an aged man who more than fifty years before had been distinguished in war and love, who had led the forlorn hope at Kreuznach with such courage that he had been patted on the shoulder by the great Gustavus, and who was believed to have won from a thousand rivals the heart of the unfortunate Queen of Bohemia. Craven was now in his eightieth year, but time had not tamed his spirit. It was past ten o'clock when he was informed that three battalions of the Prince's foot, mingled with some troops of horse, were pouring down the long avenue of St. James's Park, with matches lighted and in full readiness for action. Count Solmes, who commanded the foreigners, said that his orders were to take military possession of the posts round Whitehall, and exhorted Craven to retire peaceably. Craven swore that he would rather be cut in pieces, but when the king, who was undressing himself, learned what was passing, he forbade the stout old soldier to attempt a resistance which must have been ineffectual. By eleven the Coldstream guards had withdrawn, and Dutch sentinels were pacing the rounds on every side of the palace. Some of the king's attendants asked whether he would venture to lie down surrounded by enemies. He answered that they could hardly use him worse than his own subjects had done and with the apathy of a man stupefied by disasters, went to bed and to sleep. Scarcely was the palace again quiet when it was again roused. A little after midnight the three lords arrived from Windsor. Middleton was called up to receive them. They informed him that they were charged with an errand which did not admit of delay. The king was awakened from his first slumber, and they were ushered into his bedchamber. They delivered into his hand the letter with which they had been entrusted, and informed him that the prince would be at Westminster in a few hours, and that his majesty would do well to set out for Ham before ten in the morning. James made some difficulties. He did not like Ham. It was a pleasant place in the summer, but cold and comfortless at Christmas, and was moreover unfurnished. Halifax answered that furniture should be instantly sent in. The three messengers retired, but were speedily followed by Middleton, who told them that the king would greatly prefer Rochester to Ham. They answered that they had not authority to accede to His Majesty's wish, but that they would instantly send off an express to the Prince, who was to lodge that night at Sion House. A courier started immediately, and returned before daybreak with William's consent. That consent indeed was most gladly given, for there could be no doubt that Rochester had been named because it afforded facilities for flight, and that James might fly was the first wish of his nephew. On the morning of the 18th of December, a rainy and stormy morning, the royal barge was early at Whitehall Stairs, and round it were eight or ten boats filled with Dutch soldiers. Several noblemen and gentlemen attended the king to the waterside. It is said, and may well be believed, that many tears were shed, for even the most zealous friend of liberty could scarcely have seen unmoved the sad and ignominious close of a dynasty which might have been so great. 
Shrewsbury did all in his power to soothe the fallen sovereign. Even the bitter and vehement Delamere was softened. But it was observed that Halifax, who was generally distinguished by his tenderness to the vanquished, was on this occasion less compassionate than his two colleagues. The mock embassy to Hungerford was doubtless still rankling in his mind. While the king's barge was slowly working its way on rough billows down the river, brigade after brigade of the prince's troops came pouring into London from the west. It had been wisely determined that the duty of the capital should be chiefly done by the British soldiers in the service of the States General. The three English regiments were quartered in and round the tower, the three Scotch regiments in Southwark. In defiance of the weather a great multitude assembled between Albemarle House and St. James's Palace to greet the prince. Every hat, every cane, was adorned with an orange riband. The bells were ringing all over London. Candles for an illumination were disposed in the windows. Faggots for bonfires were heaped up in the streets. William, however, who had no taste for crowds and shouting, took the road through the park. Before nightfall he arrived at St. James's in a light carriage, accompanied by Schomburg. In a short time all the rooms and staircases in the palace were thronged by those who came to pay their court. Such was the press that men of the highest rank were unable to elbow their way into the presence chamber. While Westminster was in this state of excitement, the Common Council was preparing at Guildhall an address of thanks and congratulation. The Lord Major was unable to preside. He had never held up his head since the Chancellor had been dragged into the Justice Room in the garb of a collier. But the aldermen and the other officers of the corporation were in their places. On the following day the magistrates of the city went in state to pay their duty to their deliverer. Their gratitude was eloquently expressed by their recorder, Sir George Treby. Some princes of the House of Nassau, he said, had been the chief officers of a great republic. Others had worn the imperial crown. But the peculiar title of that illustrious line to the public veneration was this, that God had set it apart and consecrated it to the high office of defending truth and freedom against tyrants from generation to generation. On the same day all the prelates who were in town, Sancroft excepted, waited on the prince in a body. Then came the clergy of London, the foremost men of their profession in knowledge, eloquence, and influence, with their bishop at their head. With them were mingled some eminent dissenting ministers, whom Compton, much to his honour, treated with marked courtesy. A few months earlier, or a few months later, such courtesy would have been considered by many churchmen as treason to the church. Even then it was but too plain to a discerning eye that the armistice to which the Protestant sects had been forced would not long outlast the danger from which it had sprung. About a hundred nonconformist divines resident in the capital presented a separate address. They were introduced by Devonshire, and were received with every mark of respect and kindness. The lawyers paid their homage, headed by Maynard, who at ninety years of age was as alert and clear-headed as when he stood up in Westminster Hall to accuse Strafford. "'Mr. Sergeant,' said the Prince, "'you must have survived all the lawyers of your standing.' "'Yes, sir,' said the old man, "'and, but for your highness, I should have survived the laws, too.' But, though the addresses were numerous and full of eulogy, Though the acclamations were loud, though the illuminations were splendid, though St. James's Palace was too small for the crowd of courtiers, though the theatres were every night, from the pit to the ceiling, one blaze of orange ribbands, William felt that the difficulties of his enterprise were but beginning. He had pulled a government down. The far harder task of reconstruction was now to be performed. From the moment of his landing till he reached London, he had exercised the authority which, by the laws of war, acknowledged throughout the civilized world, belongs to the commander of an army in the field. 
It was now necessary that he should exchange the character of a general for that of a magistrate, and this was no easy task. A single false step might be fatal, and it was impossible to take any step without offending prejudices and rousing angry passions. Some of the prince's advisers pressed him to assume the crown at once, as his own by right of conquest, and then, as king, to send out under his great seal, writs calling a parliament. This course was strongly recommended by some eminent lawyers. It was, they said, the shortest way to what could otherwise be attained only through innumerable difficulties and disputes. It was in strict conformity with the auspicious precedents set after the Battle of Bosworth by Henry the Seventh. It would also quiet the scruples which many respectable people felt as to the lawfulness of transferring allegiance from one ruler to another. Neither the law of England nor the Church of England recognized any right in subjects to depose a sovereign, but no jurist, no divine, had ever denied that a nation overcome in war might without sin submit to the decision of the god of battles. Thus, after the Chaldean conquest, the most pious and patriotic Jews did not think that they violated their duty to their native king by serving with loyalty the new master whom Providence had set over them. The three confessors who had been marvelously preserved in the furnace held high office in the province of Babylon. Daniel was minister successively of the Assyrian who subjugated Judah and of the Persian who subjugated Assyria. Nay, Jesus himself, who was, according to the flesh, a prince of the house of David, had, by commanding his countrymen to pay tribute to Caesar, pronounced that foreign conquest annuls hereditary right and is a legitimate title to dominion. It was therefore probable that great numbers of Tories, though they could not with a clear conscience choose a king for themselves, would accept without hesitation a king given to them by the event of war. On the other side, however, there were reasons which greatly preponderated. The prince could not claim the crown as won by his sword without a gross violation of faith. In his declaration he had protested that he had no design of conquering England, that those who imputed to him such a design foully calumniated, not only himself, but the patriotic noblemen and gentlemen who had invited him over, that the force which he brought with him was evidently inadequate to an enterprise so arduous, and that it was his full resolution to refer all the public grievances and all his own pretensions to a free Parliament. For no earthly object could it be right or wise that he should forfeit his words so solemnly pledged in the face of all Europe. Nor was it certain that by calling himself a conqueror he would have removed the scruples which made rigid churchmen unwilling to acknowledge him as king. For, call himself what he might, all the world knew that he was not really a conqueror. It was notoriously a mere fiction to say that this great kingdom, with a mighty fleet on the sea, with a regular army of forty thousand men, and with a militia of a hundred and thirty thousand men, had been without one siege of battle reduced to the state of a province by fifteen thousand invaders. Such a fiction was not likely to quiet consciences really sensitive, but it could scarcely fail to gall the national pride, already sore and irritable. The English soldiers were in a temper which required the most delicate management. They were conscious that, in the late campaign, their part had not been brilliant. Captains and privates were alike impatient to prove that they had not given way before an inferior force from want of courage. Some Dutch officers had been indiscreet enough to boast, at a tavern over their wine, that they had driven the king's army before them. This insult had raised among the English troops a ferment which, but for the prince's prompt interference, would probably have ended in a terrible slaughter. What, in such circumstances, was likely to be the effect of a proclamation announcing that the commander of the foreigners considered the whole island as lawful prize of war? 
It was also to be remembered that, by putting forth such a proclamation, the prince would at once abrogate all the rights of which he had declared himself the champion, for the authority of a foreign conqueror is not circumscribed by the customs and statutes of the conquered nation, but is, by its own nature, despotic. Either, therefore, it was not competent to William to declare himself king, or it was competent to him to declare the great charter and the petition of right nullifies, to abolish trial by jury, and to raise taxes without the consent of Parliament. He might, indeed, re-establish the ancient constitution of the realm, but if he did so, he did so in the exercise of an arbitrary discretion. English liberty would thenceforth be held by a base tenure. It would be, not as heretofore, an immemorial inheritance, but a recent gift, which the generous master who had bestowed it might, if such had been his pleasure, have withheld. William, therefore, righteously and prudently determined to observe the promises contained in his declaration, and to leave to the legislature the office of settling the government. So carefully did he avoid whatever looked like usurpation, that he would not, without some semblance of parliamentary authority, take upon himself even to convoke the estates of the realm, or to direct the executive administration during the elections. Authority strictly parliamentary there was none in the state, but it was possible to bring together in a few hours an assembly which would be regarded by the nation with a large portion of the respect due to a parliament. One chamber might be formed of the numerous lords, spiritual and temporal, who were then in London, and another of old members of the House of Commons and of the magistrates of the city. The scheme was ingenious, and was promptly executed. The peers were summoned to St. James on the 21st of December. About seventy attended. The prince requested them to consider the state of the country, and to lay before him the result of their deliberations. Shortly after appeared a notice inviting all gentlemen who had sat in the House of Commons during the reign of Charles the Second to attend His Highness on the morning of the 26th. The aldermen of London were also summoned, and the Common Council was requested to send a deputation. End of Part 5